You're about to join Niels Kostrup Larsen on a raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Alan Don and I, Niels Castro Larsen, where each week we take the pulse of the global markets through the lens of a rules-based investor. If you're new to the show, I hope that today's episode will trigger your curiosity enough to check out the back catalogue and listen to the past episodes that you may have missed, like last week's episode with Jerry Parker, which I actually thought was one of the most important episodes Jerry and I have recorded over the years and where we really got into the core of trend following. So if you don't mind me saying, if you have not listened to that one yet, it really should be the next one that is queued on your phone. As you may know, the aim of the podcast is to inspire you to become the best investor that you can be. We want to be prerogative, but without being polarizing. We want to challenge consensus narrative and to advocate how to think critically about investing in an uncertain world and to provide you with a framework and mindset that we believe is truly robust. And if you want to help us achieve that goal, what we ask of you is that if you can comment, if you can continue to send your questions, if you can share these episodes, and not least if you can rate and review them in iTunes and Spotify, we would greatly appreciate it as it's the best way for us to see that you get some value from the time and dedication we put in each week to create these episodes. And as long as that continues, we continue to do them. With all of that said, Alan, Great to see you. Great to have you back on the podcast. How are you doing? How are things where you are? And more importantly, how did you celebrate St. Patrick's Day? Well, everything is very well here, uh, Niels. It's a beautiful, sunny morning in Dublin. We're in the midst of the uh, long weekend. It started with St. Patrick's Day on Thursday, but we've having uh, having an extended weekend. So it's been a, a, a nice, uh, nice break. We've got... Uh, Six Nations rugby to look forward to this afternoon as well, which is a big thing in my house, uh, but may not mean as much to to, to you. Um, but uh, so yeah, it's a lot to look forward to today. Once uh, once we've had our had our discussion, you know, you might be surprised here, but I actually saw the Irish beat the All Blacks in Chicago a couple of years ago. If you remember that game, I was at that one too. Yeah, so that you was, were at that one too. <laughs> that was wow. one of the well, I didn't see yes. you. Yes, no, that was a great day. <laughs> And uh, and it was a very sunny day. I remember That's that right, as yeah, well. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Well, small world. Anyways, um, I'm going to do a quick market wrap because, of course, it was an interesting week. Uh, all eyes were on the FOMC outcome this week. And as expected, Powell and the FOMC raised short-term rates by 25 basis points to a range of 25 to 50 basis points. And market participants interpreted Powell's statement post the meeting as decidedly hawkish. This flattened the U.S. Treasury curve further with the inversion now seen in three years and five-year notes exceeding the yield of the maturity of 10-year notes, a signal usually pointing to a slower growth in the future as interest rates increases and in turn slow sectors of the economy most dependent upon leverage. On Friday, we had two Fed officials, Bullard and Waller, pound the table for more aggressive rate hikes to counter the current inflation rate and help maintain the Fed's inflation-fighting credibility, if you can call it that. Um, but I do think that in many investors' opinion, the Fed has already lost that credibility, frankly, and not just because of the transitory mistake, but also for adopting an average inflation approach without defining the average time period. 
The market is fully buying into the prospects of the Fed that one, they can raise rates every meeting this year, and two, be successful in engineering a soft landing, an economic slowdown that eases price pressures without raising unemployment. But I think it's fair to be skeptical that the FOMC will be able to raise rates that aggressively going forward. Much of that depends, of course, upon the outcome of the Ukrainian-Russian conflict and the change or rate of change, I should say, in month-over-month inflation. Readings should um, come down later this year. But anyways, um, Alan, always interested in hearing what you've been Keeping an eye on in the last few weeks since we last spoke? Yeah, so much going on in markets. It's it's hard to isolate a, a few market moves that have been particularly interesting. But uh, I think, as you say, the Fed very much the focus this week and really interesting when you dig into the details of what they call the dot plot. And um, so that's, you know, what, what the various members of the FOMC are projecting in terms of interest rate rises. And, you know, if you compare what we see in the March uh, um, projections versus December, you know, some participants are now seeing rates uh, rising to over 3% this year, um, which is a, a massive about turn versus where we were three months ago. So it just highlights what a you know, we've been saying on, on, on this podcast and elsewhere what a difficult job they have, but but it's 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 really been a, a big shift in the last uh, three to six months. You know, so much going on in markets. I know commodities have been a massive focus uh, with everything going on there. But what I'm finding interesting is we're seeing big biggish moves in currencies and and possibly the start of of interesting trends in currencies. And I started off in in currency markets in my career, so I'm always. Um, you know, they're probably one of the first markets I'll always go to look at with dollar yen moving up to test uh, close to 120. You know, and it's quite interesting to, to try and paint a picture of what's going on in currencies because we've had the euro declining, but it was possibly more of a euro story than a dollar story. Um, you've had the dollar yen moving up, but again, it's possibly a more yen weakness. You know, the Chinese uh, renminbi has been relatively strong against the, the dollar. Um, I look at the dollar versus Swiss, that, that's one I also, also look at, and that's quite range back. So you've got a lot of cross currents, but the dollar yen one is definitely interesting because we had the Bank of Japan, you know, basically indicating that they're they're not going to be in a hurry to do anything in terms of monetary policy. So this potential rate divergence uh, is what seems to be driving the move at the moment, and it, this always brings me back to to one of the big trends that was in markets early in my career, which was the big dollar yen move up uh, in the mid 90s to 147, which was a real classic uh, trend and carry trade. So I'm always curious, are we possibly on the verge of another one of those moves um, to, you know, too early to say that definitively, but easy to see how the conditions might be in place for that to play out. So interesting how, you know, as well, we, what often you get is you get a big move in one market and then that starts to have knock-on effect on, on, on other markets. And obviously, the, Japan is an importer of, of, of oil and often tends to get influenced when you get a big move up in crude oil. So you have a move in one market and then you're starting to see the spillover in, in currency markets as well. So I think that might be something we touch on as we go through the podcast. But certainly, it's, it's uh, interesting times, I would say, in, in currency markets. Yeah, and you know, I'm I'm very excited by the fact that one, you have uh, a lot of experience in currencies, and actually that you are starting to see some uh, interesting opportunities that may arise. Because actually, I think currencies has probably been the worst sectors for trend followers for the last fifteen years. Yeah, um, you know, it has just not been an easy. Uh, 
sector to be trend following, uh, frankly, because central banks have been holding a pretty tight grip on on their uh, coordinated policies. Um, but as you rightly say, this is changing and we are creating this divergent environment, which is so conducive to trend following um, and uh, it sets us up for interesting times ahead, not just in currencies, uh, of course. From my point of view, if I look at the week from a trend-following perspective, um, I keep an eye on, you know, five, ten different managers where I can see daily data coming in and, and I try and sort of see what's been going on. And as far as I can tell, despite relatively big moves in some of the markets, um, you know, it has been a relatively quiet performance week for, for trend-followers. You know, energy and grain prices sold off quite uh, significantly. At some point, we had crude oil down $30 uh, from its recent high. We had wheat trading 30% lower also uh, from its uh, high 10 days ago. But as mentioned, I think the trend follows, um, you know, we've mentioned this many times before, trend follows, we are first and foremost risk managers and we size the positions inverse to volatility and i think that's a lot of what we see right now and so as volatility has been increasing since february i think a lot of a lot of managers uh, have been you know reducing their position size uh, and vice versa of course for others and i think everybody knows who i'm referring to they don't adjust positions uh, during the trade and they wait for a new signal to to do that um so there might be a little bit of difference between those two type of approaches and i think also that this ability for us and this focus from trend followers to be risk managers first and foremost is actually one of the key reasons why investors should not try and time or trade in and out of their investment in trend following firms based on what they think the markets might do next because you know we're already doing this we're already actively managing the exposure in each of these markets so i really don't think it's a good idea and and frankly you know, just like the worst thing that we can do as trend followers is to miss a great trend, the worst thing an investor can do is to miss a great run in trend following performance um, just because they're trying to, you know, can they time their investment a little bit better and be too clever? I mean, the last four months, if you miss that period in the trend following space, your performance will look vastly different you know, than, than people who are in it, uh, for sure. Elsewhere in kind of the classical trend-following portfolios, I would say there was also a little bit of a correction in, in the metal sector. So, um, But I do suspect that people had a, a pretty enjoyable week in fixed income on short positions. Equities, of course, could be a little bit to both sides, depending on time frame. But there was obviously a very inspiring rally. Uh, this week in equities um, so they finished the week substantially higher um, and as you said currency is interesting I'm not sure exactly whether there was net net a big move in the currency sector for managers but certainly they're starting some some interesting um, levels in some of the currency pairs my trend barometer finished the week at 70 that's a very very strong reading we've been hoovering around sort of 60 70 80 at some point in the last couple of uh weeks um and so it really is confirming the strong performance uh we're seeing from trend followers uh so far this 
year. Now, before we move on to the questions, we have one question from Abe that we need to uh, deal with. I just want to say that there are more questions coming in, and I appreciate that. We're very grateful for for those uh, being sent uh, in. Of course, info at toptradersonplug.com is the uh, email address. And But I will just say that a lot of them are directed to Rich, Rob, Mark, and Jerry. So even if we don't bring them up today, it doesn't mean that we've forgotten about them. We'll just bring them up as uh, all of the other guys come uh, on in the upcoming episodes. But let's turn our focus on the question from Ape, Alan. And, and, and actually, it's a little bit maybe outside our wheelhouse to uh, be commenting on this today. So it'll be a good... Uh, a good exercise for us to keep us sharp. But anyways, Arpa writes, um, what are Nielsen guest's opinion about role harvesting strategies? I was, as a relatively newbie to this future space, intrigued to read Matthew Gomez's 2015 paper on a supposed role harvesting strategy involving buying the most backwardated products in a group of products. Those spot returns are highly correlated and selling the least backwardated. His approach is systematic, which I like and gravitate towards, but not really trend-following, which I have struggled to implement, as commodities could have spot returns, those decline in steeper than the associated backwardated futures curve, leading to uh, one purchasing highly backwardated products, even if they are breaking down and below their moving averages. What do you think of this role-focused type of approach? I think it might, uh, and by the way, I'm still reading the email, so I think it might suit my personality more so than buying new highs, breakouts, which I'm not in which I haven't embraced, uh, which I'm not embarrassed to say, sorry, I'm missing, messing it up here, I found psychologically challenging. So, and I think, Avi, by the way, you're not the only one who finds this psychologically challenging to buy breakouts. Uh, let me assure you of that. Anyway, thanks for your insights. So now I'll be completely frank here. I have not had time to read the paper. But I know you skimmed over it and you are probably even more into these things than I am. So I've got some other observations, but Alan, I would love to just hear your thoughts about and see if we can help Abe a little bit on on this. Yeah, it's an interesting uh, paper. I mean, it's a, a discussion of a particular strategy of capturing the role yield that is uh, evident in, in commodity futures. So, so by that, we mean for markets in... Um, Backwardation. If you're um, if you're long uh, the futures contract, it'll trade at a discount relative to the the spot. And but you, as that contract roll forwards, you're capturing that that roll yield. And within this paper, they're looking at a what I would call a relative value strategy. So you're long uh, some commodities versus short other commodities, depending on whether each of those commodities are backwardated or in contango, and going long or short uh, commodities that are correlated with each other to try and uh, mitigate the the influence of the spot price move. So I think it's, a, you know, it's a very valid strategy. Uh, as an allocator, you know, in the past, I've allocated to, to different strategies, not just trend following and managers who use, you know, a multi-strat approach. So it is quite, certainly not unusual in the industry to for managers to have a relative value strategy or a carry strategy alongside a, a trend following strategy, because, you know, it does tend to be uncorrelated. It is in the broad category, as I say, of relative value strategies, whereas trend following is a directional strategy. And that and that could appeal to, I can see why it might appeal to somebody. Um, what comes with that is a different return profile. I think the paper highlights that, that you know, this particular strategy tends to be uncorrelated 
uncorrelated with equities and bonds, and I would guess uncorrelated with trend following as well. Um, but what you get with a relative value strategy is that you won't tend to get that convexity that we really like about trend following. And the fact that when you get big moves in you know, traditional assets, you'll also often get really good performance and strong performance because you have that directional risk on in a trend following portfolio. In a relative value portfolio, you're going to be long some markets and short some other correlated markets. So you might continue to have an uncorrelated return profile, but it won't have that uh, attractive characteristic. Carry strategies in general, and this is a, a you know one of the, the subset of carry strategies, they do tend to be negatively skewed, um, whereas trend following tends to be positively skewed, depending on what time frame you're measuring over it. And can you just explain that? For There might be people out there who don't know what we mean by that. Basically, when, when we talk about skewness, we're looking at um, whether you're getting the bigger moves on the positive side relative to, to the negative side. So what you tend with a negative skewed strategy, you tend to accumulate lots of small gains and then a big loss occasionally. Um, whereas with trend following, you know, you tend to get more consistent losses and then the occasional big gain. And that can can, can give you the, the, the nice uh, positively skewed profile. And obviously, one of the, you know, we've been talking on the allocator series about this as well. One of the downside of just looking at the sharp ratio is you're just looking at volatility versus return. You're not thinking about the the overall ca- characteristic of the return series to incorporate skewness. So it is an important uh, metric to, to keep in mind. So yeah, interesting strategy. It is interesting how he touches on this, how, whether it might be more suitable to his uh, uh, personality. And that's fair enough. I mean, some people will say, well, I, you know, I don't, it, you know, the idea of buying high is difficult for me. Maybe that's a reason to invest with it with a manager who will do it for you if if that's something that's challenging. But certainly, you know, uh, relative value strategies, carry strategies, they all have a place within a diversified uh, managed futures uh, portfolio, I would say. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point, actually. And I, I would also add to that to uh, answer Arby's question here that we've had the discussion actually uh, a while back whether or not you should actually pursue strategies that quote unquote fit your personality better. And I think that a lot of people um, would make the case and say, yeah, you should definitely do something that you feel better about. But I also remember Jerry making a really valid point saying, well, that's BS because frankly, you should pick the strategy that's going to be the most robust and most rewarding over time. It doesn't have to fit your personality, especially if it's a rules-based strategy. You just have to have the discipline to implement it. And I think that is actually a really, really good um, and, and very valid point. I'm not sure that there are many people who frankly enjoy trend following in, in terms of the profile. I think a lot of us takes a lot of comfort in it. And of course, we enjoy it when it's doing well. But you, I don't think we can necessarily say honestly that we enjoy it during the times when it's not doing so well and when it's going into one of its famous drawdowns and, and all of that. So, But I think your point, Alan, about um, if, you, if you want to do the carry trade and you want to implement that yourself, first of all, I will say I do think you have to be careful because I do think it has inherent risks that are not obvious uh, and I think if you just look at what happened in nickel, which I talked to Jerry about last week, and of course is all over the news, where you just had some market movements that no one uh, would have expected, that's what a carry strategy will get killed on, um, while a trend-following strategy, for the most part, is kind of built to handle unexpected uh, market moves. But if you really want to do that, Abe, and 
obviously that's completely your choice. I, I think Alan's proposal of saying, well, you should probably allocate some of your capital to trend following, but if you don't want to do it yourself, find someone to do it for you, someone with experience and someone, frankly, who can give you that diversification anyways that you need in trend following. I think we've seen that again uh, during what's happened this time around in, in, in February and March, that diversification is critical to be successful in trend following. You can't rely on just a handful of markets and you certainly can't rely on on a handful of markets in the same sector to do the work for you because it could be completely unaffected about what's happening and you're missing out on lots of good trends happening elsewhere so but we're grateful for the uh we're grateful for the question now if there is like one or two of you sitting out there who don't really know what contango and backwardation really means and and i can assure you it is difficult to uh to remember what exactly is it. So so contango is when the price closest to us in terms of time is higher than future prices and backwardation is when the price closest or the spot price is lower than future prices. That's uh, what the two means. Um, did I get that right? Yeah, so if, I think if so. you are in a backwardated market, uh, if you're long, you'll benefit from the roll yield and if in a contango Indeed. market, if you're short, you'll benefit. That's the way I always uh, Remember yeah. All right, let's move on to uh, some of the topics that you brought along. They are um, very interesting, and I very much look forward to uh, to diving into these um, because a lot of things are happening at the moment. Um, so uh, it gives us, obviously, lots of things to talk about. Now, the first kind of topic you had, big picture, and there are lots of small kind of questions along along that uh some of it that where you actually have some comments to previous conversations with with rich and 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 jerry and so on and so forth but it is quite an important and very fundamental question to uh, the whole podcast and that is what causes trends in markets so let me uh, let me allow you to uh, give your thoughts on on this uh, broad topic yes it's interesting because obviously you've been talking to various guests rich and jerry i think in particular you know about this idea of exogenous uh, drivers and endogenous drivers of markets and it's something that i think uh, came from following the podcast where uh, jp had his research around how you know over very short time horizons he was noticing significant moves in markets that appear to be unrelated to news events which was interesting and that's kind of indicative of more endogenous driven markets and when we say when we're talking about endogenous is that it's the just the inherent behavior the interaction of the buyers and sellers in the markets by themselves without any external stimulus i guess might be more of an endogenous driven whereas an, an exogenous driven move is something where that's very clearly something happens in the news and everybody re reacts so so that i mean it's it's been interesting to track that and it is it is linked then to the more general question is okay we're trend followers and we believe in trend following so but why do we get trends in markets what causes trends in markets you know i think probably the the general view is well you get some news and the market responds to the news and, and i think that's true i mean i i don't think you can dismiss that you know and the first thing is we have an economic cycle and that tends to be the the, the first thing you know the you tend that you get macroeconomic volatility you get gdp expanding and contracting and that tends to be you know an important driver of of, of different markets probably more so certain markets like if you think about short-term interest rate markets they are actually anchored on 
the policy rate. So they're very much influenced by an external factor. So probably less endogenously driven when you get big moves there because it's they have a very much an anchor other types of assets are more sentiment driven i would say say the second thing is that you do get random events like we've had recently obviously we've had covid we've had the war in ukraine and these are very much i would say in the category of exogenous factors that 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 trigger a move and they're what i would call you know, repricing events because something significant has happened in the world and every lots of assets have to reprice to a new scenario. So if you think about, you know, what we're seeing in wheat, what we're seeing in oil. So we're saying, you know, with COVID, we had a, a, a change in the macro backdrop and, and everything had to reprice to that. So we know, we know we're, we're going to have less uh, demand for oil. So the price had to go down. Now, what you tend to get in these scenarios is not just the first order impact, but you can get the second order and the third order impact. So it's kind of like, you know, if you have a, a lake or something and you throw a big stone into the lake, you get the ripples uh, coming out from the lake. So you get an, an exogenous factor is the shock that comes into the market. You get the first order impact, which every everybody can see very clearly. So, you know, uh, of late, it's the, the, the supply coming out of the, the oil market or the supply coming out of the wheat market, and that's pushing up wheat prices or oil prices. But then you get the second order effect. So so the second order effect in, in the case of what could be that it's influencing the value of the yen. Um, so, so I think... Exogenous factors do play a part, um, but where the endogenous uh, element comes in then is it's the kind of the state of the market when you get that exogenous factor coming in. So the markets can somewhat sometimes be primed for a big move. And this is how you can get what you might think of as nonlinear reaction. So the, uh, the same type of event can have a bigger impact on the market depending on how people are set up. So, so for example, we saw a big reaction maybe in the taper tantrum to Bernanke's comments back in, in 2013. Why was that? Well, it was probably because the market had been conditioned to expect rates to be low for a long time. So people had, the the, the, the way market participants were set up was conducive to seeing a big move. Or if you go back to, you know, the flash crash in whenever it was 2010, or even the 1987 crash, you know, market participants were set up in a particular way that you can get, you know, maybe not the most dramatic exogenous factor. And it's, it's what I think Rich was talking about, tipping points and the idea of, of an avalanche. And, and it's this idea of, you know, the butterfly flapping its wings in, in, in Tokyo can impact the wheat uh, crop in, in Chicago. So it's a small, depending on how the market is set up between the accumulated positions um, amongst the buyers and sellers, that uh, um, an external stimulus will have a different impact on the market at different times. And that's why you can get bigger trends in response to some some uh, external factors at some points and, and more muted reaction uh, at, other, at other points. Um, I think there's a couple of other dimensions as like why do we get trends in markets and why do we get uh, big moves? And, you know, obviously the behaviour of the market participants as well, it's behavioural biases, how we all respond to the move. So we see the market starting to move and obviously the market influences our, our, our perception. So the price rising, you know, why were people interested in buying Bitcoin, arguably? Well, because the price was going up was certainly one of the reasons. So people rising prices attracts uh, attracts buyers, you know, going back to, to, to the economic theory, uh, you know, Keynes had this idea that 
you know, he was a big observer of markets, uh, financial markets. He was saying, you know, the game of investing is like the, the pretty faces competition. So there used to be this competition in the newspaper where you had to pick the prettiest face out, out of, say, 20 people they showed. But the, the game wasn't to pick the prettiest face. It was to pick the, the, what everybody else thought would be the prettiest face. So you might have a perception, but that's not that's not what you're really uh, trying to predict. You're trying to predict well, what will everybody else think? And then the question is, well, what will everybody else think that everybody else thinks? So we would say it's it's like that in the market. So, you know, we've got a scenario, you know, dollar yen is moving higher. You know, will people see that and say, OK, now we've got a trend in place and the yen is behaving in this way. So I'm going to trade it that way. So it, it, the, the parallel in the, the markets is that the price influences not only our perception, but it influences what we think other people might perceive. That 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 we'll that you, that you think well, other people will see this trend and and think that that's the way to go. So that enforces that kind of trend following bias. So I think that's another factor contributes to, to trends and markets. And then the final factor, which I think is interesting, that I just wanted to bring into this is that. One of the first things I read when I was starting off in the markets was was a book by uh, George uh, Soros. It was the the Alchemy of Finance, and within that he has this theory of reflexivity, and this is all about feedback loops. And the, his his insight is that not only do you have this kind of bias, and, and actually I was just looking back on it uh, just in the last couple of days, and he specifically talks about the trend-following bias in the market. Uh, and he wrote this back in, in the 1980s, and he was particularly talking about currency markets. But the, his observation was that that the price itself that then can influence the fundamentals. It's not like the fundamentals are happening as, as a separate um, a separate thing. It's the fact that the, the 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 economy is influenced by the what's happening in the financial markets as well. So you know a couple of examples of that are, um, you know, say say for example, emerging market uh, currencies and emerging market debt markets. So if for, for whatever reason you get positive sentiment towards an emerging market and capital starts to flow in, so what happens is the local bond market will start to rise, the currency will start to rise. So that has positive impacts on the local economy. Um, you know, r- the rising currency will help uh, constrain inflation. Um, the rising bond market will reduce bond yields. That makes it easier for, for that country to service its debt. So you get what you call a, a virtuous circle that uh, because of the flows are coming in and because of that positive perception, it actually improves the fundamentals of that uh, economy. Up all up until the point that, that for whatever reason sentiment might turn, um, you know maybe they use that funding, uh, that cheap funding to overinvest, or maybe they, they start uh, you know spending too much and they get a current account deficit and everything goes in reverse. But the point is that you get these boom bust cycles, virtuous and vicious circles in in, in markets because the the price that, that that is derived in the financial markets then starts to influence the the, the actual fundamentals. So so it's very hard to say. Is it endogenous, exogenous? There's so much going on in the markets at any one time. You've got the economic cycle. You've got the behavior of the participants. You've got how people are set up when you get this external stimulus coming in. And then you have this feedback loop between the financial markets and the real economy itself. So I think... I think both are important. Um, I think an interesting question that you know that 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 I used to get, you know, speaking to clients is, you know, you can describe why you get trends in markets, and that makes sense, you know, and particularly, you know, people really, you know, buy into the idea of fear and greed uh, and 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 all of that. 
But then what about those periods when we're not getting trends in markets? So what's happening then? That's a, it's, a, it's an in- interesting question. And I think w- what you've got then is that you're just having less, fewer of these big periods of, you know, well, more periods where more markets are in a, some kind of broad state of equilibrium. So if you think about crude oil going back to maybe the start of the last decade, say I think it was between, say, 2010 and 2015, it traded between maybe $80 and $110. And, you know, broadly speaking, that's a market in you know a broad sense of equilibrium because you know broadly the the the, the supply and demand are being matched at, at a similar price over time but then over time new supply came into the market you had shale in the US and so the supply started to outweigh demand and then you started to get a trend but i think these periods where markets are less trendy i suppose you would say are, it could be periods when markets are more in equilibrium you're not getting as many of these random shocks but actually one of the things that 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 you see and from kind of from a technical analysis perspective you know there was always this idea when when markets are just up in in a range that they are building up because you have buying buying and selling behaviors uh, positions being being developed and that once you get the external stimulus that's when you can get a big move so you've seen that you know, you've seen a reasonably uh, reasonable size in, in you know in gold in the last uh, couple of weeks, whereas it had been trading say between seventeen forty and eighteen twenty for 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 a few weeks. Crude is another example. The euro, you know, was trading. You know, if you go back you know, over the last decade, it was in a range for a long time and then had a breakout. So, it's it's like the idea of the Minsky moments that periods of stability are laying the foundations for periods of instability. So you can get these periods of quiet in markets where trend following won't do well. Markets can be broadly in equilibrium. But that could be laying the foundations for periods of dislocations in markets, which is what we're seeing now. So we've actually had a period of more quiet markets for a few years, and now we're seeing a period of more volatile and more dislocated markets. Yeah, no, I like that. That's a great number of really important points. Um, a couple of thoughts on my side when I hear you speak like that. Uh, one is, by the way, another interesting observation is, of course, that uh, oil actually traded for 30 years between $15 and $30 from the 1974 to 2003, I think. It was really stuck in that range, which, of course, is still 100% different from the low and the high, but but I mean, nothing compared to what we've seen since. Um, so, so that's interesting. Of course, it also, you know, um, kind of confirms why you need to be fully diversified as a trend follower because there will be times where a market or sector stays in a range, like we've seen currencies for the most part uh, for for a decade or, or more uh, for for various reasons. I like your kind of explanation as to why two trends occur. And I think that I think a lot of investors, especially on the institutional side, kind of want us to be able to answer that question, right? Because I think for many other strategies, they will always ask, so why does your strategy work? What's the what's the thesis behind it? You want something. And and I'm I'm reminded about I have a couple of sort of thoughts on on this one i was reminded when you were speaking of my conversation with uh, professor andrew lowe a few years back uh, of course he is the proponent of the adaptive market hypothesis and not a subscriber to the efficient market hypothesis so when i asked him about it i remember him saying well markets are efficient but only sometimes mm. right and and sometimes you get this because as you rightly say for long for long periods of time they can be in some kind of balance and there is no you know and you can say yeah they, they look pretty efficient and they're not moving a lot but then there will be something happening that makes 
this balance tipped to one side or the other, and that's when you big, get your big market moves. The other thing I was thinking of when you were talking is that I think partly why, and I'm putting together this as my own thesis, and I'm, I don't know that I, today I'm going to kind of go into all of the details of it, but one of my inspirations in, in terms of answering the question that I think a lot of people have been mulling over and, and voicing uh, is this kind of, have we seen a degradation of trend-following returns in the last decade or two compared to the 70s, the 80s, and the 90s? Lots of people want us to to kind of admit that, which is, um, you know, hard to to keep the fortress on this one because returns have in some years been been lower than expected. But... I think on Wednesday, I'm going to be releasing a conversation that I had uh, with uh, Rob, but also with one of the authors of a book called The Rise of Carrie, Kevin Coldine. I was planning to do it last week, but something came up and we released the um, uh, Harry conversation with uh, Alex Gorevich, uh, which was really, really interesting, by the way. So um, basically what, what Kevin and, and his two co-authors, uh, Jamie and, and Tim Lee, wrote about is this Kerry regime. <laughs> Interestingly enough, we've just talked about Kerry. Mm. Um, but this Kerry regime where investors have been rewarded for doing nothing other than owning bonds and fixed income, sometimes in a leveraged fixed income uh, version. And this Kerry regime have stayed with us for a long time, partly because central banks were able to manage a lot of things into this stable world. But as we're starting to see now, at least that's my thesis, uh, and it's also the author's uh, th uh, thesis, but maybe for different reasons, this carry regime is coming to an end. And it's been a long, it's been at least two or three decades that we've seen this, more so in the last decade uh, or two. And as you rightly said, going back to, to, to kind of technical analysis, going back to George Soros, et cetera, et cetera, if you've had a certain regime for a long time, actually what you could expect is something really violent and brutal in the other direction once it ends. And that's kind of what I'm thinking. I'm seeing the beginning. And by the way, I'm I'm going to bring in a lot of stuff that we've been talking about on the podcast for a long time. And I can't remember exactly when, but there was certainly a, a period where we talked about the fourth turning. I don't know if you're familiar with the fourth turning, mm. but, but the fourth turning is generational cycles, right? Uh, and Neil Howie and Bill Strauss wrote about this back in the uh, early 90s, where they predicted that the fourth turning, which is the worst one, that's the crisis turning, and a turning is about 22 years, they believe that, although they predicted it to start around 2005, uh, I've heard since that Neil said, yeah, it probably started in 2008 with the great financial crisis. And so we should expect this to last you know, to 2030 or maybe 2032, thereabouts. So we're still far away from that coming to an end. And actually what Neil says in the book and, and, and Bill Strauss says in the book is a lot of people think that the big one, the big crisis is the, at the beginning of the fourth turning because the great financial crisis, what could be bigger than the great financial crisis? Mm. But he says, no, 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 no. The big crisis comes towards the end and so if we just and i'm not oh i certainly don't hope this is the case but if we see what's happening in europe in the last couple of months and what we have started to fear could escalate into now that's something that fits a fourth turning because all big wars both in the u.s revolutions uh, world wars they all come during the fourth turning so what i'm just saying here is 
I think that there are ingredients from many sides that I've seen, books that I've read, guests that I've spoken to. And I think this is where we've lost as investors and maybe as, as humans. I think we've, because of this stable carry regime, I think we've lost our imagination to be able to understand or even comprehend what an environment could look like if we go back to something that fits, say, a generational fourth turning. And then we can obviously move it further and say, well, what kind of strategies would you like to have in a world that goes completely crazy and where you have market moves similar to what we've seen in the last six weeks? Do you want the stable 60-40? Do you want risk parity? Or do you want trend following that doesn't predict anything, that just follows these crazy price moves and hunts for the outliers that are surely going to show up in a period like that? That's the question investors have to ask themselves. And and I'm not trying to scare anyone when I say this, but I do encourage people to prepare. And if it's meaningful for them, if it's meaningful for them to protect their portfolio, then trend following should have a meaningful allocation in their portfolio. That's how I see it. And, you know, we've been doing this podcast for eight years now, and it's been not always the most exciting thing to talk about because people were poo-pooing the strategy because it had a couple of quiet years and had some drawdowns and so on and so forth. But I think people are starting to see the value of what it brings um, to a portfolio when something unexpected happens. So those are some of my thoughts, at least the ones I remember. <laughs> no, I think rambling. you're right. I mean, we've, we've had that period... Yeah, and, and it's not like we haven't had any random events in the world. We, you know, we, we've had Brexit, we've had different things going on in the world. Sure. But if you look at the last decade, by and large, you know, it was a period of fairly subdued economic activity in the sense that, you know, no boom, no bust. Um, I think there's one more thing yeah. we have to add to this, and that is, yes, we've had some unexpected events. We've had a great financial crisis. We've had... COVID, we've had, um, you know, other things happening in the last 10 or 12 years. The difference is that at those times, central banks had the ammunition to do something about it and to create this cushion, this stability, so to speak, by the dip mentality, because not least because they didn't have to battle inflation. Yeah, And there's a debate as to why that was the case. It may have been the case because of the the disinflationary dividend that we got from globalization and China and Eastern Europe coming into the world trading system that may, some people are arguing now, is gone. Some people still say the disinflationary bias is still there because of debt, etc. remains to be seen. But but certainly, there was never a policy dilemma in the last couple of decades for central banks. As soon as there was a crisis, it was very easy to ease policy. And, and, and that was what, what politicians wanted. That's what the markets wanted. You know, you have a conundrum now. If you get, uh, if you get, uh, uh, you know, volatility. If you get risk events in markets, and it's, you know, we're, we're obviously we're seeing at the moment that that, that that central banks have to now continue to tighten, even in the midst of these events. That which, you know, maybe if that happened to ten years ago, the bias might have been to ease actually. And you mentioned volatility, and I'm no expert here, but what I have noticed is that volatility seems to be much more persistent at higher levels in the last few months. I mean, and some of the relationship between what happens between the S&P and the VIX is kind of a little bit out of sync uh, at the moment. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think there are signs for a change. 
and it could be a seismic change in the way market operates. I mean, I think just going back to what happened in the LME, right? I mean, they're starting to see examples of things that are getting a little bit out of hand here, um, which is um, obviously interesting. So another question that you raised, which is obviously kind of very natural to follow on a discussion like that, especially after three or four months where, yeah, it's been very, very productive to be in in the trend-following camp, is, of course, is it too late to invest in trend-following? What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I raise that just because that's the typical reaction you would get from investors and clients after a period like this where maybe we were making the case for investing in these strategies and then you see the very strong moves and then people say okay you've had extreme moves in commodity markets you know we're probably not going to see them anymore and if if there are gains there probably will be reversals and you know it's very hard to to disagree with that in some sense i mean there is that the, you know we've had had some seismic shifts in the commodity markets and we don't know whether we're going to see more of them but you know if you look back at the performance of of uh, trend following historically one of the things that uh, you know nobody has ever really found a mechanism for for timing it um it's one of those strategies that people always want to wait to see it working before they'll jump in and then it starts to work and they'll say oh have we missed it it's really one of those things that should be a strategic component in your portfolio if you believe that this is the way markets operate. So I, I think, as as you're speaking there, if we're in the midst of, of a regime shift, it's unlikely to be something that lasts for one or two years and then peters out. Um, for sure, there may be a drawdown for trend following at some point. You know, uh, if you look at, say, the performance of trend following in 2008, I think there was a very strong start. There might have been a, a dip in the middle of the year and then new trends emerge. So it's impossible to say when you're allocating to trend following, you're allocating to an approach to trading, to capturing moves in markets. And um, it should be something that that is a strategic uh, element to your portfolio rather than trying to time it. So so no, I don't think it's too late. Um, I, I think what you do see with some investors is rebalancing from time to time, although it's always tricky to rebalance and, and add to the exposure during drawdown. It's probably easier to take a little bit off the table after it's worked very well. But, uh, you know, as I say, even amongst the trend following community and the CTAs themselves, nobody has ever found a mechanism for saying this is this is how to time trend following. It's one of those ones that you, um, you know, if, if you went through, uh, take any trend following manager and went through the monthly return series, often what you'll see is a, a strong month followed by a strong month and then there might be a dip but then you can get three or four strong months again because new trends in markets when you get into a, a market environment that's conducive for the strategy often what you see is that the trends rotate and that's what we've seen to, to up to a point now recently so it's been you know, last year, the start of last year was probably copper and we've had a big rebound in, in, in oil. Into this year, now we're seeing moves in wheat and nickel. Now I'm saying, OK, we possibly could be starting to see moves in currencies. You know, equities had been trending to the upside, now they've turned down. So it's impossible to predict which markets themselves uh, will trend. But if we're into this market environment of more volatility, more dislocations, then you have to, you really kind of have to close your eyes and, and invest if, if that's what you believe is, is how markets work. And don't try and second guess it and don't try and time it. Yeah, no, I love everything you said there, Alan. And I will say that I um, I love when people 
especially sort of potential investors who's been on the sideline and who missed the big uh, move and, and, and never bought the dip, right? Of course, they buy the dip in everything else but trend following. So I love it when they come and we have conversation about these things and people say, no, exactly as you, you said, no, 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 we've had all these extremes moves, you know, definitely not the right time to buy trend following. And I'm thinking, well, you didn't, you didn't predict it that we're going to have these moves in the first place. So how do you think you have any way of predicting that there's going to be a correction in these moves that, you know, how do you know? And it's a little bit like, um, you know, with central banks, right? They never see any of these crises in advance, right? They, they never see them. And yet we, we still ask them to, to fix it afterwards, right? Which is kind of crazy. Um, but so, so that's one thing I just want to say that, yeah, I think sometimes we just don't have to think too much. And as you rightly say, you need to construct your portfolio. And as I said before, if having lower drawdowns, having higher overall returns is meaningful for you as an investor, there's just no evidence to show that you shouldn't have a meaningful allocation to trend following. So that's one thing. The other thing, I just want to go back to the previous point we talked about, you know, why do trends occur? And and we're kind of expected to have a fancy uh, way of uh, scientifically explaining why trends occur before people would be interested in, in making an investment. And I'm kind of thinking to myself, well, why don't we just take a super simple approach? Why don't we just look at the markets? Let's look at you know, a hundred different charts. And if you can find me a hundred markets that have made no moves, no trends in the last 50 years, okay, maybe you shouldn't invest in trend following. But as we all know, every single market will have a move or a trend on a, on a regular basis. And so why do we need to have any kind of thesis behind why trend following works when we know that all we do is we wait for them to occur. We buy the uptrend, we sell the, the downtrend, um, and we can see them happening. We have all the evidence for hundreds of years of data. So why is it we still want to be skeptical about an approach like trend following, whether it should work or not? I mean, it's just interesting that there is so much resistance. Uh, it's kind of going back to, to Abe's uh, question that he doesn't think it fits his personality. And I think this actually even goes with investors who don't have to pull the trigger but just because it for some reason feels really hard to own which we can understand we we, we do and and none of us enjoys the the uh, the drawdowns on the other hand wouldn't we rather have this kind of volatility that where we can at least see it historically uh, and it's there than investing in something that's never had a drawdown, so to speak, and then suddenly loses 30% of its value and you have no idea whether this is normal or not normal. So, I mean, I think it's David Drews who always said that the most robust strategies are actually the most volatile strategies. And I think he's absolutely right because we realize volatility on a single on a daily basis, not like private equity where, okay, it's not very volatile, sure, because you only price it once a quarter and you kind of very often give the price yourself. So these are the things that kind of box me from time to time when we get into it, as, as I'm sure everyone can hear that um, it's a bit of a rant today, but there we are. We 
we kind of already talked about it, but I think we need to dive a little bit deeper because you brought another topic up as well, um, which I'm in- interested in in seeing where you want to go with that. Um, and and well, actually, I do know where you where we want to go with this because it's it's inspired by an article from um, that we both of you uh, you and I read, and it's actually a really important article. I think it's in um, is it EQ Derivatives? Uh, um, is that what the magazine is called? Yeah, I, I had you had sent. I hadn't uh, come across it myself, but uh, it, it was uh, definitely. Um... Yeah, yeah. Some of my colleagues shared that with me, and um, so um, it's actually the topic of risk mitigation and investors' perception of trend following. Uh, so why don't you um, why don't you take that and give it a spin, and then we talk about it. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, the the article was just talking about how public pension plans in the US have embraced um, risk mitigation strategies. So it's definitely been a theme that we have seen uh, in the US uh, investing community over the last 10 years or so, I would guess. And and various organizations have been at the forefront in embracing trend following as a, you know, what has been called a risk mitigation uh, strategy. So I think that's the Calsters. Um, Calster has been one of the large uh, public uh, pension plans in California. That's the label they've put on it, um, which makes sense. It's basically a component of their overall portfolio, which is designed to provide diversification, basically, to their more, I suppose, risk or grow- growth-oriented strategies. And within risk mitigation, um, you know, you you have trend-following um Many um, institutions use uh, long duration assets as well, treasuries, and they also use uh, some uncorrelated kind of risk premium type strategies as well. Um, some other consultants um, and allocators call it crisis risk offset. So there's various names like this, but it's certainly certainly been a, an interesting growth. And I mean, I think we would all say it's welcome that these pensions are embracing trend following for those diversifying characteristics. And, you know, as, as Neil says, you've been saying, very often people will will wait to see the performance before they get convinced. Whereas in, in this instance, we've seen this trend of these, you know, sophisticated institutions allocating to trend following over the last decade. Um, now, interestingly, the article does highlight how they haven't got to their kind of target allocations in, ma- in many cases, which is interesting. That That's one thing. The second thing is that it's interesting now, it's almost like many of these organizations are now refining their their risk mitigation strategies and thinking a kind of a little bit more deeply in terms of thinking about what type of, of equity drawdown are they trying to manage against and which types of strategies will work. You know, do you should you use have a, a mix of faster trend following and more medium to, to long term trend following? And should other strategies be part of this? And 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 you know, the the scenario that we're seeing in markets at the moment is um, uh, kind of a market environment where where, where bonds are, are not obviously being as effective in in diversifying equity portfolios. You know, typically bonds will do well when you get a an economic growth scare and and uh, the expectation of lower interest rates. Whereas if you get a shock that is driven by an expectation of higher rates, such an, as an inflation shock, uh, bonds won't be as good as an equity diversifier in in that sense. It, they'll actually be they'll tend to fall at the same time. So so I think there's increased sophistication in the use of the strategies uh, amongst the the, the I suppose the early embracers, um, so I think that's that that's good as well. I mean, it does strike me as well why we've got this, um, why certain institutions like like Calsters are have been at the forefront. 
Whereas if you look across Europe, you know, in many instances, not obviously not everybody, but but certainly in the whole area of you know multi-asset investing and many typical asset allocation plans, you don't see that much representation in trend following. It does strike me, you know, why is that? And you know, is is it? I know you uh, you've been talking to other guests, Niels. Is it the name? Is it the label that's put on it? Is it a is it a, 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 a misperception? And uh, I think you're probably right. There's there's probably multiple things. You know. If, if it was called, you know, unconstrained multi-asset, would, would that would that change the perception? Or, you know, what's the difference between trend following and say a global tactical asset allocation approach? Probably pretty similar. It just the inputs are are different, but yet some strategies tend to get embraced more. So I think it's great to see that we have ha- had that growth in in some markets in terms of embracing trend following, and interesting how it's people are getting even more sophisticated in the use. But looking across the rest of the world, I think there's still uh, lots of investors who are very much under allocated these types of strategies. Yeah, I mean, I was kind of hoping, Alan, that you would have all the answers to this because, of course, you come from the allocator side and you've been dealing with, I, I'm sure, maybe not so much you personally, but of course, uh, uh, your colleagues with some of these institutions. But let me let me pick up on some of the points you say. Well, first of all, Calsus, um, people should go back and even though it's a few years old, but I did interview uh, Carrie Lowe, uh, the CIO of Calsus, uh, in one of the roundtable uh, episodes uh, a while back. They had had their risk mitigation allocation um, for a while. It wasn't new to them, but it was, I think, quite new at the time that suddenly you had these big pension plans starting to carve out part of the portfolio to call it specifically risk mitigation, as you rightly call it. And back then, I think they had something like... 35 or 40% trend following and then 35, 40% uh, 30-year bonds type stuff. And then, as you rightly say, a couple of... uh, you know, other strategies, global macro risk premium uh, type stuff. Um, clearly, I think her foresight and along with her colleagues have been uh, proven right. I think also people, even those people might have a risk mitigation strategy, I think they might have to revisit it now to, because clearly the 30-year bonds part of that risk mitigation is not working out so well. Um, it certainly hasn't done this time around in terms of the Ukrainian crisis um, for all the reasons we know why. But more importantly, I'm kind of hoping, uh, well, I'm hoping, but I'm also fearing uh, that many, many, many more institutions will now have to start thinking strategically about risk mitigation. And frankly, if they want to call us risk mitigators, that's perfectly fine with me. Uh, if it helps them get it into their portfolio, not because we as an industry really, you know, it's it's not a sales pitch, but it is really important that the pension funds of the future who, after all, have to meet the liability of our families, that they don't blow up uh, in in a world where maybe correlations of stocks and bonds goes positive and both of them go down in price. They need something else uh, in their portfolio. The the challenge will will be, of course, could this cause uh, every sort of a, a real surge in interest and flows into trend following? And what may that do to trend following? Will there be managers who are tempted to go for size above it, their natural capacity and therefore returns will diminish? Or will people be strict? Um, because some of the managers who've done well in recent years, they have now come to their 
levels of capacity, and it'll be interesting to see whether they have the discipline to say no thanks when people show up with a $500 million ticket and say, oh, we really want you now. So um, that's going to be interesting for me to see and to see the flows. I think you're absolutely right. The flows tend to come a little bit later. Now all the consultants have to kind of do their work and help investors find solutions as to how they can invest in trend following and uh, with whom they should invest in, uh, in their, their capital, the vehicles, and, and so on and so forth. But I would I, I would think it's, it's almost unavoidable that we're going to see uh, a higher level of interest and flows uh, for good reason, of course, uh, into this space. Now, final point that we wanted to bring up was really something uh, closer to your uh, home, namely a little bit of what you've learned, maybe some of the key insights that you've taken away from uh, the first few episodes of the Allocator series, which has been uh, very well received. So well done on that, uh, Alan. Some amazing guests, really um, great guests, very, very different guests, uh, but all very interesting to listen to. Uh, some great stories. Um, we have had, you know, the the $25 billion pension plan, um, quite outspoken uh, CIO. We've had, uh, you know, listened from the Queen's Bank uh, type CIO. We've had the you know the mammoth 1.6 trillion dollar portfolio CIO on on the podcast, um, and many of them also who have written books uh, on on different topics, uh, of course, around alternative investments and so on and so forth. So lots of things for you to have discussed with them, and I I really encourage people to go back and listen to all of the episodes so far. And there's a couple of really good ones coming out going forward. Uh, then we may take a break and then come back uh, in a few months with a another batch of of uh, allocator episodes but tell me a little bit about them if you want to take a few things away from from some of them and share sure. that so to to whet the appetite of of uh, of our listeners uh, feel free to do so yeah well I obviously encourage people to to listen in if they haven't already we've had some really interesting guests uh, as you say you know a few points that you know that 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 stood out from me for me um you know, we we spoke to, as you say, Sebastian Page, head of global multi asset at T Rowe Price, and he's written a lot of academic papers on the markets and portfolio construction. And one of the ones that that he talked about was his paper, "The Myth of Diversification," and it's this idea that you can have a portfolio that may look quite diversified, but you could be actually, um, you know, what you tend to find with it with a lot of assets is they will become more correlated to equities in a crisis. So you can have a portfolio that looks like you're actually quite diversified you could be in yeah, bonds and credit and credit hedge fund strategies but actually you will have a bigger drawdown risk because these will become more correlated in the drawdown so it's not just the amount of diversification but the nature of the diversification and that's where something like he doesn't come from a trend following background at all but all of his research that he does in his multi-asset portfolio construction is supportive of the idea of allocating to strategies like trend following and, and time series momentum and long short strategies directional long short strategies like that so I thought that was really interesting that if you take everything that he says it really supports the case for trend following even though that's not not, not his approach uh, we spoke to alan higgins as you say of coots um that was really interesting very candid conversation alan reflecting on 35 years in the industry and uh, you know he has some great anecdotes from his time early in his career back in the late 80s early 90s and you know one of the things that struck in my mind was he was talking about how he was involved in currency markets and trying to predict 
specific currencies. And at the time, you know, it's always tricky to, to try and predict dollar yen, but they brought in a guy who had a, you know, a trend a trend following model or experience allocated to trend following. And he had that early experience of seeing trend following working back in at that period. And that has stuck with him, basically. So it's definitely consistent with my experience of working with allocators that people who have been allocated at a time where it's worked and have seen the, the merit of the strategy have always stuck with that strategy and have that greater ability to to continue to allocate to, to trend following and manage features because they've been there at the times where it's worked and it's been helpful in their portfolio. So interesting to see that from from Alan. And also he, he's very good at you know highlighting how, uh, how their team would look through the whole universe of, of macro strategies and you know how it, it's often tempting to go for strategies with attractive short ratios, etc. But you really got to be careful about not picking up some inherent equity market beta with some of these strategies. And you have to differentiate between those ones that might just be uncorrelated with equities and those that actually have the ability to generate positive performance in times of economic and market stress, such as as, as trend following. So it's very interesting from, from that perspective. As you say, we chatted to Elizabeth Burton, you know, managing $25 billion at Hawaii um, State Pension. Very, very, again, a very candid, interesting conversation, very open. And uh, Elizabeth has, uh, you know, very differentiated views, I would say. You know, one, one of the things was, do we need all of these asset class categorizations? You know, we private debt, private credit, equities, you know, public equities, private equities, etc. And I think what she says has a lot of merit, that you have a lot of different flavors of, of equity and uh, growth risk, you know, in portfolios. And you have different shades of it, but but ultimately you have kind of growth or equity type strategies and you have diversifying strategies and you have different flavors within all of that. But maybe having all of these buckets can constrain people at times and say, you know, well, can we can we allocate to this manager? We already have a manager in that bucket. It, it, it can actually be detrimental to, to performance. So that was really interesting uh, to get her perspective. Um, we had Chris Schelling and, and um Phil Huber, both both authors of books recently on alternative investments on portfolio construction on manager selection, um, a lot of good stuff in in their books and uh, interesting. We we got quite deep into the whole area of manager selection. I would say with Chris Schelling, uh, the the behavioural challenges of selecting managers, and this is something that everybody I feel everybody is aware of, but nobody really has a strong set of of answers as to you know overcoming those challenges. Everybody says, yeah, well, ultimately it's just really difficult to come overcome behavioral challenges but you just have to try and put in place as good processes as you can and that was something that came out chris you know the whole idea of you know don't just meet one manager meet 100 managers to really get a sense on okay what does it take to be good at doing a particular strategy um so repetition as 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 a, a means to to upskill in terms of manager evaluation and then you know putting in place certain processes to to try and overcome those biases and and obviously with Phil Huber you know he's gone through the whole gamut of different alternative investments and the merits of of, of all of those but also a big proponent of you know the use of trend following and managed futures in portfolios. So we've had the kind of the institutional multi-asset view. We've had the pension view. We've had the wealth management view. Uh, we will have more guests like that in the coming weeks from those types of uh, investors and more. So certainly um, very interesting, really enjoyable so far. So um, definitely encourage everybody to, to listen in if they get a chance. 
Yeah, no, I certainly enjoyed them a lot, and I um, and I agree with the uh, some of the things that you said in terms of some of the highlights from the conversations. Of course, you and I recorded this week. It's going to come out in ten days' time or so. Uh, a, a conversation with uh, Ted Sides from the Capital Allocators podcast, and who, of course, by background um, has been you know used to work at Yale uh, Endowment, and and of course had his own kind of fund of funds uh, firm for for quite a while, where he made the famous bet with Warren Buffett uh, that last that ran for 10 years uh, hedge funds versus the S&P so um, and he also actually had some really interesting insights in terms of some of the points like manager selection etc etc so yeah I, you know hopefully this series will continue um, just uh, with just inviting people with with different uh, views but on the same topic not always agreeing but giving us a chance to think about some of these uh, things and um and so, yeah, lots of things to uh, to learn from from that. Let me turn quickly to a little bit of um, update on performance, since I can see we're already running long. This uh, so much to talk about, Alan, with you. So, anyways, but um, yeah, as of Thursday, performance was still pretty strong. I think um, I can't remember yesterday. Probably mixed, not not a big uh, move either way. But uh, as of Thursday, at least the beta fifty index uh, up four point zero six percent up 7% so far this year. Uh, Sokgen CTA index up 5.8% for the month and up 10.78% already this year. Sokgen trend index is flying up almost 7% in March, up 14.76% uh, for the year. And the Sokgen short-term traders index now really picking up now to up 2.4% in March, up 4.14% for the year. As I said, my trend barometer uh, closed at 70, which is pretty strong. Uh, MSCI World Index turned around, had a great week uh, in equity space, up 1.1% for March, but still down 6.8% for the year. And the World Government Bond Index, apropos our conversation today, another down month, uh, down 1.4% uh, so far in March. Of course, if you uh, like what you hear um, and you want to help us, please go to uh, Spotify or go to iTunes and leave a rating uh, and review so more people can find the podcast. Next week, I'm joined by Mark, and um, that's always going to be really insightful. So please send us your questions, info at toptradersonplot.com, and we will do our best to um, to answer them. Um, I think that's it for now from Alan and me. Thanks ever so much for listening. We look forward to being back with you next week. And in the meantime, as always, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor podcast series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.